0: Well, good evening, everyone. Our sermon text this evening comes from Judges chapter 14 and 15, both chapters, 20 verses or so each. I'm just going to begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 14. Hear now this, the word of the living God. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines and Samson said to his father get her for me for she pleases me well but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel well this is the word of the living God and we say thanks be to God please be seated Let's pray together. As we begin, ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to wake us up. It's able to stir us. I pray that that will happen this evening. I pray it will quicken us. I pray that it will grant salvation to those who need to be saved. I pray for the beloved in this room tonight, that you will satisfy them with the goodness of Christ. May we even see him this evening. And it's in his name we pray, amen. I'm gonna begin with a little bit of an introduction. I was a soccer player throughout my life and in high school, just playing on a team and about midway through the season or so, we were a bit flat-footed in a game, complacent if you will. And we didn't play our best, I think, when all of these, this long season, it's a long season, and you string all those games together, there are going to be times where you're flat footed, you're just not playing at your best, you're not really in it. Well, We had a player, not the best player, he wasn't a starter, but he came off the bench, and though he wasn't the most skilled, he tried his absolute best when he got on the field. And he would just run, and run, and run. And if the other team had the ball, he would be up on them. Now, he wasn't the best at stopping them necessarily, but he disrupted them. He was a nuisance. And the next day at practice, our coach really let us have it because we were flat-footed. We were complacent, not playing our best. And then he brought this particular player forward and said that we all need to be more like him. Said he's a nuisance to the other team. He is a thorn in their side. And naturally, high schoolers, for the rest to this day, we call him Thorn. That's his name. Thorn. Not the best player, but he's the sort of player that woke us up out of our slumber. Well, I'm going to make an argument tonight that Samson is a thorn, and a thorn in the Philistines' side. One of the points that's been repeated thus far in this series is that, is that the author of the book of Judges wants us to see that the Israelites, they fall further and further away from God and God's promises. They spiral downward. In last sermon, we read that the Israelites had taken another step downward. They had become complacent with their enemies, their overlords, the Philistines, Judges 13.1, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There has been a progression in the book. Generations prior to this current generation, those Israelites, generations prior, would have cried out to God to rescue them from their enemies. But now Israel does not even cry out for help. The Philistines have taken over their land And verse 4 says the Philistines have taken dominion over Israel. Israel should be taking dominion. They are not. Instead, they just live with the status quo. They have lost faith. They are cold. They have no motivation to fight for their land and to take it back. They are fearful. And that's the context. They will not even seek salvation. They do not even ask for it. Before moving any further, I think this is worth contemplating. This is one of the primary messages I hope to get across. This story is like the story of every sinner. Which one of us in this room went seeking for God when we were entrapped in a lifestyle of sin? Which one of us called out to God because of something good welling up within us? Not one of us sought God. That's what the scriptures even tell us. Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, and then there's this, there is none who seeks after God. So without him, without the Spirit prompting us, we would not even want to be saved. So the Philistines are a picture of every sinner. They're complacent. They're okay with the Philistines' Ruling over them. This is one of the great uses of the book of Judges. We see depravity, but not just Israel's depravity. We should see a picture of our own depravity. What we would be like without the intervention of God in our lives. And the book of Judges ends with a pronouncement, a description of Israel. In the days of the Judges, all of Israel did, quote, "...what was right in their own eyes." Now Samson comes on the scene, and though God uses him mightily, he too does what is right in his own eyes. In fact, as we'll begin, he does what he is right in his own eyes in verse 1. Notice verse 1, Samson sees a woman. The very first actions recorded of him are sinful. She's a foreigner. She's one of the enemy. And he seeks marriage to an enemy of God's people. He who had a miraculous birth, the angel of the Lord shows up. He who has been set apart by a Nazarite vow, even he does what is right in his own eyes. He sees a foreign woman and decides he wants to marry her and he presses his parents. You can see the repetition there in verses two and three. Do you really not see anyone of our own people? And then he says to, his father again get her for me he will not back off and this decision is surely not pleasing to god and as one commentator has pointed out samson the one who is supposed to deliver the israelites from the philistines instead marries a philistine so his parents are not happy and they ask and you're not fine one among our own people and only 3 verses in we're reading this narrative about people who are deeply flawed so that's quite the statement considering the sins that <clears throat> that Samson is notorious for committing he is going to deliver the people despite his sin so all that by way of introduction and now for some headings as we get into this. The way that I've broken this down, I'm just going to look at this through three victories. So victory one, victory two, and victory three. Samson's name, by the way, means son in miniature. Matthew Henry says that as the son is described as a strong man, he then says that why not describe Samson as the son? And, and when you look at the Puritans, there's a number of them. When they describe Samson like Matthew Henry, there are these glowing terms. So as we begin, as we get into this, we're going to see his sin as we already have. But as, as, we, as we get into this, we're going to see that this deliverer, though he's sinful, is listed in Hebrews 11. So victory number one, Samson defeats 30 men. Samson defeats 30 men. Let's pick it up in verse 5. A lion comes down upon him. He's walking through the vineyards of Timnah, and to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he tore the lion apart as he would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. And he does not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So a lion comes upon him and surely this has not happened before. It's not been recorded for us. So why does a lion come upon him? I think this is showing Samson himself what he's capable of doing. Does Samson know the depth of his strength or or, or the breadth of his strength? Does he know how strong he is? Really, the, the lion must come upon him. He must tear it apart before he can really see how strong he is. So this lion comes upon him and he tears it apart, tears it apart quite easily. And then he continues on. He goes down, talks to the woman. She pleases him. And afterwards, Samson, he eats honey as he's walking back from the carcass of the lion. That's verse 8. And what's notable about this is that Samson is under a Nazarite vow, per the instructions of the angel of the Lord. Remember, the Nazarite vow is threefold. Samson is not to drink wine or alcoholic drink, he is not to eat anything unclean, and no razor shall come upon his head. And by eating honey from the lion's carcass, he breaks his vow, at least this aspect of it. And then he actually gives some to his mother and father, dishonoring them. Verse 10, Samson then goes down, and he's going to have a feast for his wedding Notice verse 10. He gives a feast there for young men used to do so. So Samson gives a feast, and that's an interesting phrase, for the young men used to do so. Surely there is drinking involved at this feast. And a number of scholars believe this to be the case. Daniel Block says that the word for feast in this context refers to a seven-day drinking bout at the home of the bride's parents. So, This is the second way that Samson has broken his vow. And the last aspect, of course, remaining is his long hair, which later will come off. We'll read about that in chapter 16. So now verse 11. It happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. That is, the Philistines brought 30 companions to surround Samson. Perhaps they saw the size of Samson. Perhaps he's formidable looking. But it's curious that the Philistines thought it necessary to surround Samson. Samson's getting ready to marry a Philistine, and now the Philistines are going to surround him with 30 men. There's something perhaps ominous on the horizon already. And then Samson says to them, let me pose you a riddle. If you can correctly solve it and explain it to me within seven days... I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Consider here that Samson is challenging this man. Riddles are fun. I will often post riddles on my board, and I do this for my students. It's just good fun, right? Post them on the board, see if we can get it right, see if you get it wrong. You get it right, I'll give you a piece of candy. This is not such a game. And we know it's not friendly. Because what happens when the 30 men cannot figure it out? They threaten Samson's wife with death. The men are provoked by this riddle. I think that's part of what Samson is getting at. So already, he's living up to what God's ideal for him is. They are provoked. He's a thorn, if you will, in their side. verse 14, for three days they could not explain it, and it came to pass that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you. So she's put in a bad spot. And then his wife weeps on him, like Delilah does later. You only hate me, you do not love me, you have posed a riddle, but you've not explained it to me. And he tells her, I haven't even explained it to my parents, why to you? But she presses him so much that he finally gives in. She's not a good wife, she deceives him. She's a dripping faucet. And Samson Gives in. She then explains the riddle to the sons of her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, they sort of put it back on him and give him a riddle of their own. What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And that could be a direct answer. one scholar Roberts is helpful here because he actually answers this for us. What is stronger than a lion? Well, Samson is. And what is sweeter than honey? Alistair Roberts says this, love. Samson himself is the lion who ends up being defeated by love and sweetness when he could not be defeated by strength. This proves to be true, I think, in this chapter. But also later when Samson gets in trouble because of his dealings with a prostitute and then later with Delilah, women prove to be instrumental in Samson's downfall. But then we have revenge, verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily. And when this happens, Samson does well. In this case, he kills 30 men from Ashkelon and takes their clothes and gives it to the men who knew his riddle. And notice, this isn't Samson just taking personal vengeance. This is the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him mightily. It is the Lord fighting through him. Just as the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he fought the lion, now the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he kills 30 people Of his enemies. And this is the first time the Israelites have actually stood up to fight against their overlords. This is God's purpose. He's waking his people up, if you will. The baseball great Cal Ripken, Baltimore Orioles from a while back, he was known for his consistency, known for being a steady player always ready to play. I found it interesting. I saw him, read about him, and he did not talk trash, which I I was completely surprised by. I just thought Cal Ripken, being one of the greats, would have been a trash talker. But he was not a trash talker, and he gives an interesting reason for not talking trash. He says that when he's playing his opponent, he goes, if they're asleep, why would I talk trash and wake them up? He's let them sleep. And he would hit base hits on them all day. I think the point here let's go back to verse 4 in chapter 14. This is the crux. Let me repeat this. Samson's father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he, that is God, was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Remember, the people of Israel, they're complacent. They're flat-footed. And something has to come alongside them and stir them up and wake them up. And this is a messy story, if you will. Some people may not like it, but it is the word of God. And Samson proves to be a hero of the faith. And part of it is because of this very story. He fights against the enemies of God. So let's see victory number two. This from 1420 to 158. Samson destroys produce, farmland, and the men who kill his wife and her father. Beginning in Chapter 15, verse 1. After a while in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, let me go in to my wife and to her room, but her father would not permit him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines, And Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took the torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. So he destroys produce, farmland, and later he will go and fight other men. A few notes here. Consider how deliberate this must have been. We can read this kind of quickly. It's only three or four verses or so. But consider what it would take to catch 300 foxes for a moment. He's not outsourcing this. He catches 300 foxes. And then to keep them alive and to tie them tail by tail, this is a lengthy Process. It's a deliberate process. He wanted to harm the Philistines. And this is quite clever. He puts a torch between the foxes and keeps them alive enough that they would scurry off and destroy the produce of the Philistines. Like Gideon, who had the 300 and the torches, now there's 300 and there's more torches. It was very deliberate. And despite, again, Samson's sin, he is pestering the Philistines. He is judging his people. The Philistines, rather, Samson's wife, his father would not let him have his wife. He takes revenge. You could say that his father, Father-in-law was not allowing Samson to have children of his own. He was blocking Samson from having fruit of the womb. And so therefore he goes and he destroys the fruit of their vineyards and farmland. And then Samson goes and the Philistines retaliate. And they say, who has done this? And they find Samson's wife, and her father, and they kill them with fire. So that's victory number two. Now Victory number three, Samson defeats a thousand men. Samson defeats a thousand men. After beating them hip and thigh, he dwells among the clefts of the rock. He has to flee the Philistines, and he dwells among the cliffs of the rock in another region. This verse 9 of chapter 15, and the Philistines then seek revenge on him and go up to find him. Now, verse 9, the Philistines go up, they encamp in Judah, and they deploy themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So the Philistines want Samson, and now Judah is going to have to go and get Samson, And this is, the tribe of Judah agrees to this. They arrest him and they turn him over to the Philistines. And Samson only makes them promise, do not kill me yourselves. And the tribe of Judah agree not to kill Samson. They only arrest him. And then they turn Samson over to the Philistines. Now think back with me for a moment. Back to the beginning of the book. Judah led the charge. The people of Israel gathered together when their enemy overtook them and they asked which tribe should go up first and God said it should be the tribe of Judah that goes up first. They were the most prominent, the strongest tribe. They were chosen to fight the enemies of Israel first and now as this book winds down, Judah turns over their own countrymen to their enemy. Do you see how far we've fallen? Judah has become a tribe of cowards. They are complacent. They are comfortable. Coincidentally, in God's providence, Pastor Ryan spoke about Judah this morning in his sermon. It is from Judah that the king would come. Judah is a lion's whelp. The scepter, the king's scepter, belongs to Judah. And now, Judah... This is a bunch of cowards. This is what they've been reduced to. And think about the nature of their sin for a moment. How often is sin like this? Perhaps you, believer, do not pursue holiness because it requires too much change in your lifestyle. Perhaps you like the status quo. How many in our day are willing to overlook their civic duty because it interrupts their comfort? How many Christians do not do their Christian duty because it interrupts their comfort? This is Israel's problem. This is Judah's problem. They do not want to be delivered. To resist their enemy would require hard work. It would require them to come alongside Samson and go fight the Philistines with Samson. It would require active faith. And it's easier in Judah's mind not to deal with this. We're okay with the Philistines. We've got bread. We've got meat. We're doing fine. They'd rather not have the nuisance that Samson is. They could have joined Samson. Instead, they arrest him and they they turn him over. May such an attitude, brothers and sisters, not be true of you. Let each one of us do the task that God has called us to. It is certainly not the same task that Samson has or Judah. We're not called to raise the sword against our enemies in order to take back the promised land, yet we are to abound in love and good works. That will require sometimes for us to go out of our comfort zone. It will require sweat and sacrifice. Think of our Savior and his attitude towards good works. I did not understand this perhaps so much when I was younger, but now I think I do a little bit more. Jesus was pressed all around when he traveled from village to village. He was a traveling teacher and miracle worker, and people were clamoring all the time for his attention. And how often was he surrounded by people and pressed in, and crowds can trample one another cause other problems. And we read in the Gospels that so many people would try to get a glimpse of him that eventually Jesus had to stay on the outskirts of the town. But Jesus kept working. He kept healing people. He kept teaching people. When they brought him children, he was kind to the children. He prayed for them. Even his disciples, no, don't, don't bring the children. They're, they're a nuisance. They're a nuisance. And how often is evangelism a nuisance? And disciple-making hard work requires sacrifice. It requires us to to get up and and do things, perhaps, that we don't want to do. So they hand him over to the Philistines. And in verse 14... Samson comes to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. And now the Spirit of the Lord comes again. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson more than any other judge, by the way. And the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that burned with fire. True superhero stuff. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, Reached out his hand and took it, and he killed a thousand men. Literally, a thousand men with it. And Samson sings afterwards with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking, verse 17, he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. Judah's not singing with him. None of the other tribes of Israel are singing with him. You remember the other victories in the Old Testament? Women come out and they have the tambourines and they're singing and they're dancing. Not this time. Israel is flat-footed. They're asleep. They're complacent. But Samson is here, and God has put his spirit on him. And he is using this man, this very interesting man, to rile up his people, to give them a little bit of fire. And three times now, he gets victory by the power of the Spirit of God. And it should have been, That the tribe of Judah or perhaps some other Israelite meets him and refreshes him. But Samson finds himself in the wilderness and he's thirsty. This is verse 18. He's so thirsty he thinks he might die. Samson is by himself, alone. And he cries out to the Lord and says, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank. And his spirit returned, and he revived. And therefore he called its name En-Hakore, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Like Israel in Exodus 17, remember they, they cross the Red Sea, and they drink From the rock, as water gushes out, here God split the hollow place that is in Lehi and water comes out. And when Samson drank it, it says his spirit returned. It revived him. So Samson is given here more than just water. Just as the Israelites were given more than just water after the Exodus. Remember 1 Corinthians 10? It's not just water that they drink. It's not just water that revives Samson. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. That's what it is. It's a spiritual drink. And Samson is drinking the same spiritual drink. 1 Corinthians continues, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But they did drink from that rock, which is Christ. Samson drinks from the rock that was Christ. Samson, after his victories over God's enemies, he drank that. Drink. And as the Israelites, they, they, you remember, they complain in the wilderness that they were not back in Egypt. But it's at that very moment when they're complaining that God gives them drink. And Samson, though he was a sinner like the Israelites, despite his sin, God still. Gave him, of all people, a drink. And not just any drink, it's a spiritual drink. He takes rest, he's revived. And while other Israelites would not fight alongside him, when they would not even cry out, when they would not even ask to be delivered, Samson does fight. Samson does cry out to God. When he was thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. Knowing his dependence on the Lord. Knowing his weakness. And there's a lot of faith in Samson here at the end of this chapter. He knows the Philistines are the uncircumcision. That's what he calls them. And by way of contrast, we could say that he knows he is part of the circumcision. He is part of the true covenant people of God. His faith is intact. It's alive. It's well. He is actively believing upon God's promises. And so the chapter ends. God's word is not void. Samson did precisely what God said he would do. So believer, what do you think of Samson's faith? Are you encouraged by his faith? Often we can just get fixed on his sins. And they're egregious. They're parents. They're obvious but do you doubt the genuineness of his faith? One lesson we might draw from this is his faith is active. It may not be apparent throughout each element of this narrative, but when he was thirsty, he did not t- attempt to dig a well for himself. He cried out to the Lord. He knew that without God's help, he would die of thirst. Do you know your need? For God? Do you know that you cannot dig a well for yourself? Your record of good works will not get you through heaven's gates. You must drink from the well that God provides. Christ says this If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water, that is earthly water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I provide will never thirst again. Christ, I submit to you, satisfies Samson's thirst at the end of chapter 15. It is notable, lastly, to conclude, Samson judges Israel for 20 years after these things happen. That's the very last line of the chapter. So it is apparent that Israel actually comes alongside Samson and they submit to him as judge and as their leader, at least in some sense. So in the end, Samson is indeed a thorn in the Philistines' side. But more than that, he is a type of Christ. I'll end with this quote from John Calvin. All that scripture predicts in a favorable manner about Samson may justly be applied to Christ. To express it more clearly, Christ is the original model, Samson is the inferior antitype. When he assumed the character of a redeemer, we ought to understand that none of the titles bestowed on that illustrious and truly divine office apply so strictly to himself as to Christ. For the fathers did but taste the grace of redemption. That is, the people in Samson's day, they just got a taste of the redemption. While we, in the church age, have been permitted to receive fully in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this book of Judges. May it have its intended effect in us. May we marvel that you use sinners to accomplish your purposes. And may we marvel that despite egregious sin, you still hold out living water that whoever may drink of it may never thirst again. Work in us, we pray, for your namesake. In Christ's name, amen.